Shalom, everyone. So today, uh, I will try my very best. I, I hope I don't lose my voice in the middle of it, but um, I want to uh, present a, a message uh, from our series of study in 1 Corinthians. And today we are in chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 2 to 16. And let me give you a little statement of explain the context. From chapter 11 to chapter 14, Paul is dealing with some issues that are related to the church ministry and worship. In this section we'll look at today, he's going to address a topic that has to do with the corporate worship. And then for the rest of the chapter, then he will deal with the topic of communion. And then when you get to chapter 12, all the way to chapter 14, he will deal with the issue of spiritual gifts. So the whole context has to do with church life of worship and ministry. And what we are about to read today is one of the most controversial texts in the entire New Testament. And I've been kind of longing to preach on this topic because this is something very dear to me, something that has to do with women and their place in the body of Christ. And so um, just want you to know this text, along with a few other texts that we'll be reading today, is going to be quite controversial. So just read it and sort of draw that in or you may want to just breathe it out of your system. But women can be very much turned off by the reading of this text and the other texts uh, by Paul. But anyway, it's in the Word, and so let's read it out loud together. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them unto you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. 
for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, how are our women feeling as, as you're reading this text? Or whatever, <laughs> whatever, Paul. <laughs> okay, let's go on further because I want to give you, I want to give you some more texts which can really frustrate women in general. Okay, in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse thirty-two b to verse thirty-five, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow. I don't know if any women will buy that today in the Western world. Okay. Let's go a little further in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then basically places a woman in the similar category as children and even slaves. Of course, the women who is married are above that, but basically, in comparison to men, they are subjugated. So in chapter 6, 1, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And in verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And so in this line of reasoning, the wives are to submit to their husbands who are to be their heads as Christ is the head over the church. And then finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, what do you think about that? What do you think about all these texts that we have just read? You could imagine why women... are really upset with Paul and his teachings. Because Paul, his teachings have really contributed to this dogma of women's subordination. All throughout church history, theologians didn't, really didn't have much of a choice because if we are going to be faithful to the Word, and it's in the Word, and in addition to just Paul making these statements, he's backing it up with his interpretation of Genesis text, for example. And so you could imagine 
why the theologians who are more open-minded, more thinking on behalf of women and women's rights and equalities and so forth, they will be troubled by this. And I am troubled by this as well. Where it's one thing for theologians to say women are ontologically equal. You believe that women are ontologically equal with men, right? That is, in your existence as beings, you are not inferior to men. But the problem is, even though you are not inferior to men, you are functionally to be subordinated to men. This is what most conservative theologians would say based upon Paul's writings. So this means that women must subordinate themselves to men, both in the family and church. Women should not be authorized to teach in the church or take leadership, and certainly a woman cannot be ordained as pastors. And these are the conclusions that they make as a result of their interpretation of Paul. Now, I think you all know that I believe in the equality of women in leadership in both the church and the family. This is just my conviction. I don't expect all of you to just comply to that. You, you have your own belief. And in the body of Christ, it is divided. So I will not uh, try to be so dogmatic. But because of my bias, sometimes when I read Paul's writings here, for example, in this text, actually my bias helps me to see certain things that Paul is saying which is not observable by those who are biased the other way. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, those who are biased the other way, more of the conservative and fundamentalistic way of interpretation, you know, they, they could only interpret it one way. This, this is what the text says. This is obvious. This is what Paul means. And then they want to universalize that to the 21st century situation. But because of my bias, leaning more towards women, I see something else that uh, Paul is saying here. And so I want to talk about that today and hope that I can um, help to assure you that Paul was not such a tyrant or such a um, male chauvinistic type of person, you know. One thing we have to understand is that Paul is simply going by the tradition of those days, the custom of those days. And that's why he says in verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Okay. Well, obviously the, um, the Corinthians were not abiding by all the traditions. That's why Paul is pointing out these things in this chapter. But he's saying that the traditions are important. And what are traditions? Traditions are the customs handed down or passed down generationally. Okay. And that's what we do culturally speaking and societally speaking. But at the same time, we do the same thing in the church. What the apostles have handed down to us. And that becomes a tradition for us. And so what we see here 
is that Paul basically accepts the norm of the church. He's saying, well, this is the tradition. This has been teaching. He's not talking about the gospel per se. He's not talking about the theology of the Trinity or theology of Christology. He's talking about the tradition as to how to operate in the church, how to govern the church, what kind of manner, what kind of behavior we ought to have. And that was a norm in those days. But that was also the societal norm. So Paul obviously does not advocate some kind of a revolutionary upheaval of the contemporary societal structure or custom. Paul is not primarily focusing on human rights. In our days, human rights is a big topic. If human right is violated, the whole world is in an upheaval. You see what's happening in, in Ukraine right now. The whole world is gra gravitating and siding with Ukrainians because they feel like injustice is being done. Human rights are being violated. But in Paul's days, there were things like that happening all the time. And yet Paul does not primarily focus on that. He's not trying to advocate human rights. He's not saying we need to abolish slavery. He's not saying we have to speak for women's right to vote. He's not saying the children should have rights. Even though he will stand for justice. He will stand for their well-being. He's not trying to change the society. He's not trying to change the structure. But what I see in this text, even though he accepts the norm, he gives an insight from a redemptive perspective. From the perspective of Christ, he brings certain elements to this context. He cannot change the whole structure. He cannot change the whole way of the society. But within that context, he's saying, we can do better. We can make improvements. And one of the norm, norms of the society was that women were to be subordinated to men. This was the common phenomenon in those days. It's not like today. In today's society, in, in many different sectors of the society, women are considered equal with men. But in those days, in the first century, Roman Empire, women were subjugated to men. And even in the Jewish society, women were to be subordinated to men. That's just the reality in those days. They were considered like properties of men. And so they really had no rights. They really had no voice. Even in the Jewish community, when they worshipped in the synagogue, they had partition for women to worship in a sector that is separated from men's place of worship. And in this norm, there was a particular custom and that custom was for women to wear a veil 
and we're not talking about the veil like in Afghanistan. We're not talking about that kind of uh, complete covering of the body. We're talking about just a headdress, a veil that you place and covering your head. And this was the culture and the custom of those, those days, everywhere. And we see even today, you know, for example, in the Eastern European countries, and we see that in the North African cultures, we see also in, in, the, in a lot of Mid Middle Eastern cultures, and also I, I've noticed that in Indonesia and Malaysia, it is a custom even today for women to wear veil over their heads. And what is this veil all about? What does it symbolize? First of all, it is a custom in those days, a sign of subordination to men, no doubt about that. Women have to wear a veil, not men. But at the same time, it was a way of covering or protecting them from misunderstanding and judgments from others. Because women who do not wear veils are considered either licentious, loose. Prostitutes did not wear a veil. They would hang their hair low and try to lure men. Some aristocratic women, mistresses to famous, you know, influential men, they would not wear a veil, but they would keep their hair up to distinguish themselves from the prostitutes and loose women. If not, you basically got your hair shaven and slaves, slave women, shave their heads. If a woman is discovered to have committed adultery, as a penalty, she has to shave her head. So you see the notion about unveiling and exposing your hair or being shaven, all of these have negative connotations. Okay. So, if a woman wears the veil, then there will be no such accusation, no such condemnation because they are doing what is proper. They are doing what is of propriety, of modesty. and They are keeping with the norm of the society. And this is the context. Now in verse 3, Paul says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He's saying, God the Father is the head of Christ. And Christ is the head of every man. And every man is the head of his woman, and that is wife, usually. And so um, theologians have asked this question, what does it mean to be the head? Of course, we can take the headship, and the Greek term here is kephale, and that's the term for head. It could 
signify authority. Okay, no doubt about that. You know, Christ being our head, he is the authority figure. But a lot of theologians believe that it is referring more to the source or origin that someone derives from. And we see in context that Paul is trying to say that Christ is derived from the, the Father. That is, he is eternally begotten. He, is, he comes from the Father. Okay? And man, mankind has come from Christ because Christ created human beings. And the woman came from man because she was taken from his rib and came out of the man. It's a, it's a derivative sense referring to the source or the origin. And that's, that's how I would define this headship here. Let's continue on in verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Head. It says here that man should show honor to Christ by not having his head covered, while the woman should show honor to her husband and to Christ by having her head covered. So why does a, a man, why does a man have to wear a covering? And that would be a sign of honoring Christ. Why is that? Well, because man, even if you're a slave man, you have been redeemed in Christ. And being redeemed in Christ, your head symbolizes that image of God. And now you can hold your head up high in its glorious stature, so to speak. Besides, if a man had a covering on their heads, then it could be taken as a sign of being effeminate. A man trying to be like a woman, for example. Now, having said that, this is problematic because you know that the Jewish men, they covered their heads. They covered their heads in prayer. Jesus went around covering his head or so in the synagogue. So this is obviously not talking about the Jewish context. This is talking about the context that has to do with the general population of the Roman Empire. Okay. But the woman, she shows honor to her own head, that is with her hair covered, and also with the veil, she honors her husband as her head. So it has to do with honoring your husband. It has to do with honoring Christ. It has to do with honoring God. And something has to do with your head. Now, now you could interpret this as talking about subordination. Why do women have to... 
be discriminated? Why do women have to go through all this ritual when men don't have to worry about that? Okay. But you have to understand, Paul, in that context, which is normal context in those days, in that society, he wants to bring something that will counterbalance this notion of subordination. How does he do that? He's taking it for granted that women can pray and prophesy. Now, this is a big deal because we're not talking about just private praying, private prophesying. We're talking about corporate worship in the public. Women could not do that, but in Christian circles, women were entitled to pray. That is, pray out loud, pray vocally. Pray unto God, and at the same time, prophesy, that is, from God unto others. And what Paul is saying here is that if a woman takes her veil off and uh, she refuses this authority that is granted unto her, then she will lose her covering. And that, that she will be judged, she, that she will be criticized, she will not be taken seriously. But because the woman is under the covering, under that authority, in Christ she has all the freedom to participate in worship, in public worship, even to exercise prophesying and praying out loud, doing all the things that men are entitled to do. Besides, I think Paul was also concerned that if the women took their veil off in the name of freedom in Christ and with their long hairs flowing, it could be a distraction for men. It's like today if, you, if a worship leader, a woman, dresses up in a very sort of a revealing dress, you know, a mini skirt and all that, that just wouldn't be right. And men too as well. I mean, I have to say, men are sometimes, you know, they want to show their buffness and, and, and so forth as worship leaders. Why? Because that would distract people in their worship. And so Paul is considering all of this and he's saying the veil is actually covering for the woman. We get so fixated by the veil or the covering or, you know, authority over us as something that is so detrimental, so condescending, so inhumane. But in Paul's context, he's saying, unless you have that authority, you cannot exercise the type of freedom that Christ has given unto you. That is the ability to prophesy. And prophecy is a very high-level type of communication. You're assuming that you receive special revelation from God and you are authorized to speak the words to the congregation which may change their future, which may bring them to repentance, which may cause transformation to happen to the body. That's a very powerful tool. And today in the Reformed tradition, we replace prophecy with uh, preaching. 
I personally don't, but there are a lot of, lot of uh, Reformed theologians. They do not believe that prophecy is for today. But whatever, whether it be prophesying or preaching, the women are given the authority to do that under the authority or covering of men. Okay, let us continue on. In verses 7 to 10, a man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but the woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now, this is a very strange teaching. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the man is the image and the glory of God. That's the, that's the context. If man is the image and the glory of God, then God takes pride in the man. He elevates man. So, if a woman is the glory of man, then the man, he elevates his woman and she brings honor to him. So, the text here, Paul is taking obviously from the Genesis text in which a woman is created out of the man and created for man. But we have to understand that this is not just a, an indication of being subservient to men. Because the woman was placed as a partner or a helper to the man. She was not to be oppressed or stumped on, but rather she is to come to the side of the man as his partner, as his helper. And the woman's authority over her own head? And what does this mean? Is it talking about men being the authority so they will always rule over them? Or is it again talking about the woman who has to veil her hair as a sign of dignity and covering and blessing so that she can be free to shine forth in her glory? And all of this, Paul says, that the angels are watching over this situation. So out of reverence for the celestial beings who are the audience of the human behaviors during worship service, we should honor one another. Now let's look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So woman is dependent on man, man is dependent on woman. Woman came out of man, but the man is born of woman. So he's equalizing everything here. And he says, in the Lord... From the perspective of God, there's none of this inequality when it has to do with men and women. As we read in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, all this talk about subordination. Wives, submit to your husband. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, submit to your master. 
But right before that, in chapter 521 of Ephesians, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, he equalizes everything. Okay? And so this is what Paul is trying to say. In a society that is dominated by men, in a society where women are simply properties of men, and they have no rights, they're certainly not equal to men, Paul is saying in Christ, and in the context of worship, women can have all this freedom to express and articulate themselves and share in that equality with men in terms of the inheritance that we receive from Christ. But there's a condition here, Paul is saying. That whole thing about veil, which is the customary thing to wear, if you violate that, then your freedom, your expression, your privileges in the Lord, they will never have a chance to blossom forth. And so the covering is a way of protecting the woman. Covering is a way of allowing the woman to blossom forth in her full potential. And finally, let's look at verses 13 to 16. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so Paul is now once again, he's talking about the tradition. He's talking about the custom, the norm. The church has been practicing this for a long time. And here, he says that man with the long hair is a disgrace to him. And the woman with long hair is a glory to her. Okay? That is, woman with short hair or shaven head is a disgrace. Now, obviously, this cannot be applied historically in every generation. Why is that? Well, first of all, in Jesus' days, well, I mean, in Jesus' days, that is in Palestine. In Palestine, men had relatively long hair. Right, right now, we see our men with short hair. Most Jews would not wear hair this short. Okay? They would have the hair maybe up to their shoulder level. But even in those days, if you had hair so long, like a woman, flowing hair, that was pretty much looked down upon. Unless you were a Nazarite and you made a special vow to God. Okay? But you see, this kind of standard cannot be imposed upon in all the historical periods. And certainly not today. And I don't think Paul is saying that we get so dogmatic about this, illegalistic about this, any man with uh, you know, long hair, you know, this is a disgrace. 
Well, I mean, you, you look at a typical church today, you'll see a lot of men with long hair, a lot of women with short hair. And you see the same thing with veil. If you impose the veil upon women, well, what are we going to do with a majority of Christian population who do not wear veil? Because the culture has changed, the society has changed. That's not the norm now. So if that's not the norm, then we need to apply this in some other way. Instead of making this a legalistic sort of requirement for all Christian women to do. Okay. So I'm basically going to open up for some discussion on this topic. Obviously, um, we need to spend more time just discussing and perhaps even debating or inquiring as to what Paul actually intended in his writings. And so we have one more chance when we get to the um, latter part in chapter 14. There's one more opportunity for us to talk about this because Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32b, As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, you see, already we studied that Paul is not saying that women should not speak in the church. Paul is not saying that women should not exercise spiritual gifts like prophecy. Paul is not saying that women should not be vocal in, in the congregational setting. That's pretty obvious based upon what we have just studied today. So with that, and also we'll be studying about spiritual gifts coming up in chapters 12 to 14, that will give us a little bit more of an insight as to how to interpret the upcoming text in chapter 14, verse 32 on. But anyway, this is not a, an easy a lesson. This is a difficult lesson for any uh, preacher or any theologian. It's a difficult thing to articulate as a Christian. But I believe that in Christ, Women and men, we are both equal. Equal uh, in the church setting, family setting, in the societal setting. We're equal. And I go back to Genesis 1 text where God created human beings according to His own image. Male and female, He created them. Okay. And that's how it starts off in chapter 1 of Genesis. And I go back to that. But now, let me, summarize, let me uh, conclude. So what we see here is Paul walk, working within the context, within the societal structure. He's not trying to change that. He's not trying to overthrow all kinds of norms and customs. He respects that. He, he expects the Corinthian church to respect that. But having said that, within that frame of restriction, 
he maximizes. So women have plenty of freedom. Women can exercise their potential without it being quenched. Now today, women would say any, any of these statements that Paul is making here would quench them, quench their livelihood, quench their potentiality, and so forth. But in those days, what Paul is advocating here is amazingly tremendous empowerment of women. And Paul is really speaking for women here. He's not putting the women down here. As far as I understand it, as, I, as far as I have interpreted it. So I'm going to end the message with this. Let me pray. And then afterwards, I'll open up the floor for any discussion. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time today as we look at this very difficult text which causes so many women in the world to be so turned off by Paul and, and see Paul as a, a woman-hating apostle. But Lord, that can't be the case because uh, Paul is only working within the custom and the tradition and the norm of his days. But within that, within that uh, parameter, he really does elevate women instead of putting them down. Uh, he is talking about all kinds of potentiality of women uh, instead of quenching their spirits. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the text in context and help us to understand especially a Paul's way of thinking in context uh, as we study uh, the first Corinthians. Uh, Lord, we ask that you will liberate many, many women who are bound by the interpretation that has, uh, that has imposed upon them that they must be subordinate to men and somehow they, they will never be able to rise in the ranks of leadership. I pray that you would set them free to reinterpret Paul uh, in the light of the context of those days. I pray that you would uh, bless all of us as we consider each other with uh, great honor and dignity, that we'll never use our gender or our, our prowess as, as something to oppress others, but that we would utilize whatever that you have granted unto us in terms of privilege or honor to elevate each other and to empower one another. This we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.